Welcome to Mill Creek Church in Belleville, Texas, where our worship service is in progress. Today, Pastor Monty Bird continues with his sermon series on the book of Romans. And now, Pastor Bird. Join me in prayer, please. Father, we just thank you for your truth. We thank you that you do provide us comfort and you provide us peace and your hand is on us as believers. I just pray, Lord, as we continue to study in Romans, that you would open up our hearts and minds to this truth that you've given us, that we have so readily available, this truth that you've taken away the veil from our eyes so we might truly understand this truth that you've given us, the Holy Spirit, so that we can have clarity in our life. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, turn with me, if you will, to the 11th chapter of Romans as we continue on with our study this morning. And if you remember where I left off as we started Romans chapter 11 last week, that Paul is continuing to deal with the Hebrews, their covenant promises with God in their rejection of Christ. And if you recall from last week, Paul mentions Four reasons that support this idea of a remnant of Hebrews. Not only was there a remnant in the Old Testament that believed in Christ in a saving belief, but there's also been a remnant as we continued on not only in the New Testament, but also in this present day. So the four reasons that he gave quickly is that, first of all, he said, I'm a Jew and I've been saved. So he gave his personal testimony that he is part of that remnant who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. Secondly, he gave a theological reason because in Romans eleven two it says, God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. And as we believe in the predestination of the believer, that we believe in total grace, that we don't choose Christ, but Christ chooses us, we also see here where Paul says that he's not forsaking. He's not giving up on the covenant promises because he foreknew the remnant that would believe in him. The third reason was a biblical reason. And that was given in the example of Elijah in the Old Testament. And if you remember the story of Elijah, Elijah, after he calls down fire from heaven that consumes the sacrifice and proves that Jehovah God is the true God, Elijah all of a sudden fears for his life. And he flees. And God tells Elijah, there's 7,000 people who believe. I reserve 7,000. And, well, what is that? It's a remnant. Out of all the Hebrew people, it's Elijah, and it's the remnant. And so you have a biblical reason of why there's a remnant of Hebrews. Fourthly, he gave a living reason. And that living reason is, is that as Paul was writing the church at Rome, in that contemporary setting as he was penning that letter, that there were still people of the Jewish race that were coming to a saving knowledge in that day. And I 
pointed out last week in my sermon that that's still going on today. It's a living reason because Jews are still coming to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So those were the four reasons for a remnant. And then we get to our next question, which is our focal passage this morning. And he poses this question. He says, what then? What then? And in order to understand that question, you've got to back up and read five to seven altogether. So let's do that. In your Bible, turn with me to Romans 11 as we start in the fifth verse. And Paul writes this. He says, even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer of grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. You may be saying to yourself, well, that's kind of wordy. And it is. But what's he saying? In a simple way. He's saying it's always been about grace. It's always been about grace. It was never about works. You know, we have this definition of what grace is. And if you've ever known that, when you say, well, what's the definition or the meaning of grace? It means unmerited favor. That God chooses us. We don't choose Him. God chooses us. It's not about our righteousness. It's not about our intellect. It's not about our logic. It's about God in His mercy choosing us. And so if you look at verse 6, you can see what he's saying. And if by grace, then it is no longer works. Well, as you keep that in mind, that grace is unmerited favor. It's not us picking. He then goes on as he poses that question, what then? He then says, Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it. And the rest were blinded, just as it is written. Now let's stop right there for just for a moment. It says, Israel has not obtained what it seeks. And that's an extremely important question. Israel has not obtained what it seeks. What does that mean? Well, earlier in the letter in Romans, in Romans 9, Paul tells us. Romans 9, verse 30, he says, What shall we say then? That Gentiles who do not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel... But Israel, okay, so now he's going to tell us. But Israel pursuing the law of righteousness has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone. In other words, they were pursuing righteousness. They were pursuing righteousness, but they didn't obtain it. They did not obtain it because they were pursuing it through the law. So when you think about what I just read in Romans 9, and then you go back to our focal passage and it says, and if by grace, then it is no longer of works. 
Makes sense, doesn't it? Because the Hebrews were trying to pursue righteousness by works. You can't pick righteousness. You can't pick righteousness. In fact, the Bible says there's none righteous, right? Paul already wrote that earlier in Romans. There's none that are righteous. No, not one. The natural man cannot pick righteousness. God picks us and he makes us righteous. The natural man, the Bible says, is at enmity at God. In other words, it means that man is at odds with God. We don't like God. We're in darkness. We love our sin. It's only through grace does one find righteousness. Now, I want to stop here for a moment, and I want to make this statement. Because I think it's very important as we go through these verses that we have a clear biblical understanding of what's going on here. Because a lot of people look at verses like this, and when you get to righteousness, unfortunately, in our time of cheap, grace, that this idea that God is the enabler of your sin, that you can go down and get your ticket to heaven and then you can go do whatever you want and God really doesn't care if you get righteous or not, right? There's a lot of people that believe that, unfortunately. It's not true, but a lot of people believe that. So what does Paul mean by righteousness? What does that mean? And in this context, I think it's extremely important that we understand this. Paul is referring to that moment in time when you meet the Lord that you find yourself acceptable before God. That moment that you give your heart to Christ, that God calls you, He burdens you, and you give your life to God, and you have the blood covering of Christ, and you find yourself acceptable. It goes back to the doctrine of imputement, that... Christ took our sins upon us. Christ took our sins upon us. And his righteousness was imputed to us. So we don't stand before a righteous and holy God in our filthy rags. But we have the blood covering of Jesus Christ. So when God looks at us, he sees us with the blood covering of Jesus Christ and he finds us acceptable. So that's what he's referring to about righteousness. However, that doesn't remove the idea that we are still to pursue righteousness once we come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. We are to pursue righteousness. Because after all, God says, Be ye holy, for I am holy, says the Lord. So this righteousness is, When do I find myself acceptable before God? And the Jews were pursuing righteousness. In other words, we could take righteousness out at this point in time, and we could say being acceptable. Being acceptable. And so what the Hebrews were doing is, is because they believed that they could be acceptable. We're going to flip that from righteousness to acceptable. I find myself acceptable by pursuing the things of the law. And they couldn't. Because God's always about grace. And in His grace, He gives us righteousness through the blood covering of the cross in Jesus Christ. So that leads us to this next point. Why did they not pursue righteousness? 
that leads to salvation? Why didn't they pursue acceptance through grace? Well, he tells us in our focal passage in Romans eleven eight through 9. It says, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see, and ears that they should not hear to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and bow down their back always. Now let me make a few comments on these verses because they're very important. First, let me point out that the Jews did not pursue a righteousness or an acceptance of God because their eyes were blinded. And in fact, if you look at Deuteronomy 29, verse 2, and it reads, Now Moses called all Israel and said to them, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land. The great trials which your eyes have seen, the signs and those great wonders, yet the Lord has not given you a heart to perceive and eyes to see and ears to hear to this very day. Now, I've always said that I hope there's replay when we get to heaven. Because when we get to heaven, one of the things that I'd love to see is I'd love to see the Exodus. And not with Charlton Heston. (laughs) I'd love to see it. I'd love to see the Red Sea Cross. I'd love to see all of the wonders. I'd love to see all of the wonders that were performed through Moses. I'd love to see that. The Hebrews saw it. The Hebrews saw it. And so what Moses is saying is, you've seen all of these things. You've seen all of those. But then look at what he says. Yet the Lord has not given you a heart to perceive and eyes to see and ears to hear to this very day. Doesn't that mean for one to believe someone must have grace? Doesn't that mean that? That that when you found yourself being burdened with your sins and deciding that you needed Jesus Christ, the burden itself was a gift of God. That's what the Bible says. Our faith is a gift. Our faith is grace. It wasn't that we were sitting there and decided, oh, gee, I need Jesus You are moved by the Holy Spirit, by the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And you see that here. God did not give them a heart to perceive and eyes to see and ears to hear. He didn't give that to them. That's grace. That's grace. You also saw it in the days of Jesus' earthly ministry. Turn with me, if you will, to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8, verse 11. Then the Pharisees came out and began to dispute with him... The him is Jesus. Then the Pharisees came out and began to dispute with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven, testing him. 
But he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Assuredly, I say to you, no sign shall be given to this generation. Whether you want to admit it or not, the only person that dispenses God's grace is Jesus Christ himself. It's not me. It's not you. And we live in this time in the modern church where we say, well, if we just make things more entertaining, we make more things entertaining. If we look like the world, you know, we went through that period of, I guess for, well, I've been doing this for 25 years now. So we've been for 25 years, you've had the modern church movement say, you know what, we just need to look like the world. We need to sound, we need to play songs that sound like the world and we need to talk like the rest of the world talks and we need to just dumb down everything and if we just dumb down everything then people will accept the Lord Jesus Christ we've been doing that for 25 years and what's ended up happening the membership of the church continues to dwindle and dwindle because the church doesn't stand for anything at all all we're doing is looking like everybody else it's God in his grace And we won't see a change until the church in America starts standing for its truth and saying, I don't care what the rest of the world believes, we're going to stand on the Word of God. And when we stand for the truth, we'll see that God moves among people. A miracle isn't going to cut it. It's only God and His grace that moves the hearts of men. They were blind. It also says that they were in a stupor. What does that mean? It means that there's no sensory perception, right? They can't see. They can't hear. And I was reading these verses. I was thinking about 1 John 1. Turn, if you will, with me to 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. And I have to admit... In the Gospel according to John, the first chapter is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. And I have to admit that 1 John chapter 1 is also one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. And, and I want to give this some context. Because sometimes we read the Bible and we, we don't sit there and stop to think, well, who wrote this? So this is John. This is the most beloved disciple, right? And so he's pinning these words. And so he's penning these words, and he's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. And in 1 John chapter 1, he goes, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled. Contrast that with the Hebrews. They were in a stupor. They couldn't see. They couldn't hear. There was no perception of God. And here John says, That which was in the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, which our eyes have handled. Concerning what? Concerning the word of life. Who is that? First John says, In the beginning was the word. It's Jesus Christ. He goes, I've seen him. I've seen him. I've heard him. I've touched him. 
He goes, the life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. The Hebrews were oblivious. But here, John says, we've seen Him. We've heard Him. We've touched Him. And we want you to know. And we want you to know because you can have joy. It's the truth. But not only were they oblivious to the truth, they were also hostile to the truth. Let's go back to our focal passage in Romans 11, verse 9. Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and bow down their back always. What does that mean? Well, first of all, let me talk about table. I remember when I used to really get into trouble at home with my dad, especially as I got up older. Dad would remind me that he put food on the table and clothes on my back. And he did. That's the most important thing as we think about our family, is that we take care of our family. And when you think about the table, what he's referring to is is their confidence. He goes, let their table become a snare and a trap. Let their confidence. So let's talk about that with the Hebrews. We've already saw earlier in Romans 9 that they pursued an acceptability to God by pursuit of the law. That was their confidence. That was their table. So here he says, let their table become a snare and a trap. Was the law a snare and a trap for the Hebrews? By all means. They said, I can do this. It's a matter of self-confidence, isn't it? And isn't that what happens today when people have an acceptability apart from the Lord Jesus Christ? They say, I can do this. I can deem myself acceptable before the Lord. I've used this illustration a million times. If we went door knocking in the neighborhood. And if we ask neighbors that are lost, why would God let you into his heaven? You're going to get a lot of different answers. I've done that before in evangelistic efforts. But the most common one is, is, well, I haven't killed anybody or I haven't stolen anything. Their confidence is a snare and a trap. Just as the Hebrews, their confidence was a snare and a trap. Second thing, a stumbling block. Reminded me of what Paul penned in 1 Corinthians 1, 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, 
the world through wisdom did not know God. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to those who believe. For Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, to the Jews a stumbling block, and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. There he mentioned that word, stumbling block. In other words, they never could get to the point to where they said, I'm not worthy. I'm not acceptable. There's nothing I can do. All I can do is cling to Christ. That comes from grace, doesn't it? That comes from grace. That comes from God. That's not natural, is it? But that's what, for those who know the Lord, that's where we found ourselves when we accepted Jesus Christ. We were given a supernatural conviction and a supernatural burden apart from the wisdom of men. It's not natural for men to want the things of God. But praise God, he gave it to us. As I was going through and I was seeing all of the words in these verses that talked about being blinded in their eyes, it made me think of Jesus in the ninth chapter of John about the healing of the blind man. And when you look at how that chapter opens, Jesus passes by and sees someone who's blind. And his disciples in John 9, at the beginning of the chapter, they pose him this question. They say, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? That's kind of common, isn't it? We always try to find a reason, right? And here the disciples said, whose fault was this? Jesus answered in 9.3, he said, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And later on, he heals the blind man. And in verse 25, the blind man says, Though I was blind, but now I see. That's grace, isn't it? Blind man can't heal himself. Though I was blind, but now I see. I don't know if you've seen these YouTube videos of people that have been blinded their whole life. Physically. Physically blinded. And through the power and wonders of modern medicine... They have the camera on this person that has never seen a thing. I remember I was watching one. The mom and dad of the kid is there. They've never seen a sight. All they know is their mom and dad by the sound of their voice. And then they can see. And you see in that instance as they see and you see... As they look at their face of their mom and dad, they just start weeping because they're seeing the face of their parents for the first time. It's incredible. Isn't that how grace works with us? 
is that in spite of ourselves, in spite of our sin, in spite of our unworthiness, in spite of the fact that we're totally unacceptable standing before a holy and righteous God, God convicts us and we get grace. And just like the blind man, we can say, I was blind, but now I see. Join me in prayer, please. Father, we just praise you for the power of your salvation and the wonder of your grace. We thank you, Lord, that even though we are unacceptable, that we're unworthy, that we're unredeemable, in your grace you redeemed us, in your power you saved us, and we just give you the praise and the glory. I pray, Lord, that if there is someone listening who does not know you, that they might encounter that grace today, that conviction of sin, that conviction that there is a loving God and that they might turn their life over to you today. I pray, Lord, that we might, as believers, never take this grace for granted. I pray, Lord, that we might express the joy of our salvation. I pray, Lord, that we might be obedient to the Great Commission and that we might proclaim your grace to a lost and dying world. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us as Pastor Bird continues this sermon series. If you wish to hear more, you may find him at millcreekchurch.org or go to sermonaudio.com slash millcreekchurch. Prayer requests may also be left at millcreekchurch.org. Our church services are as follows. Sunday morning Bible study is at 9 a.m., followed by our worship service at 10 a.m. We have Wednesday night prayer meeting and Bible study, and they are at 6.30 p.m. For more information and our mission statement, please visit our website, millcreekchurch.org.